welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray together, and let's start by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Father, that is our prayer as we recite that prayer. It is the prayer of our hearts. Lord, we, we come before you, and we want nothing more than for your name to be lifted up. That's why we're here. We're here because we've experienced your amazing grace. We've experienced you as our heavenly father, our father in heaven, who cares for us with omnipotent power. And so we come before you wanting your name to be lifted up. We also pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come. Your kingdom has already arrived in degrees in this world, that it would come fully here and that we would see you reigning in this place. Lord, we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray you'd start with us. And Lord, that that would radiate out from us, from our lives, that your will would be done on earth as it is now in heaven. It's done perfectly in that place. We pray, Lord, for you to give us our daily bread. We pray for our physical bread that we need every day, Lord. Help us to not think that it comes from our own hand and our own might, but that it comes from your hand and your might. We thank you so much for all the ways you provided. We pray for those who are jobless and want jobs and and need them, Lord, that you would provide that for them. Um, We thank you, Lord, for the way you supply spiritual bread. Lord, your son said, do not live, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, Father. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us daily bread, even here as the word is preached, Lord, that you would speak, that these would be your very words for us. We pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper afterwards, that it would be true food to our souls. We pray, Lord, too, that you would forgive us our debts. Lord, we have many debts against you. We have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We've followed way too much in our own devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy law. We have left undone the things that ought to be done, and we have done things that ought not to be done. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, that you would cancel that debt this morning as we come for all that are here that are repentant, that are seeing their sin, And turn from it, Lord. We pray that you would remove it. Lord, we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we thank you for that forgiveness. We pray, Lord, too, though, as our debts have been canceled, that we would cancel the debts of others. If we came in here with any grudges and unforgiveness, whether it's the person right next to us, or person in our home, or person in our workplace, or extended family, or some person we've been estranged from for a long period of time, Lord, we pray that you would help us to forgive them as you have just forgiven us. Lord, we pray that you would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that you would help us to be alert of the strategies of the enemy and the inclinations of our own hearts, and not to trust in our own desires. Lord, we pray you deliver us from that. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And Lord, as your word goes forth here this morning, we we pray for all the churches of the valley, Lord, and that the word would go forth with power there, that your people would be fed and filled. We think of Lorian and Holly, 
off in foreign lands, Lord, we pray that you would be blessing them, that you'd be feeding them in immense ways your word so that they could pass it on to others. We pray for the translation work that Lorian's a part of, Lord. We pray that they would get the whole Bible in their language and soon, Lord, and that they would rejoice in having the word as we have the word. Father, we, we, you alone, Lord, can order our unruly wills and affections. As we read in this passage, no one can tame the tongue. Lord, no one can tame our hearts but you. And so we pray that you would do that this morning. We pray that we would love the things you command. That as we read even a hard passage, that we would rejoice in it. That we would desire the things you promise. And that we would set our heart's affections 100% on you, enjoying you all the days of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. So good morning, guys. We're really happy you're here. My name's Eric Cobb. I'm one of the, the three pastors here. I want to start with just saying that we, we thank all those who have protected our country. So Veterans Day being tomorrow, we're just thankful. If you're a veteran, we're very thankful for your service. Your service reminds us of our own God's service in protecting us, that that heart willing to go out and protect us from harm is the same heart of God in sending his son to protect us from, from the sin that we have, have done. And so we're just so thankful for you. We're thankful for that. It's an immense sacrifice. We know that to be away from your family, to be deployed, to, to put yourself in harm's way, to see things that you can't take out of your minds, and we're thankful for it. We are really enjoying James. So we've been in James for like two months. Super enjoyable. It's a beautifully crafted book. It's wonderfully practical. It is super convicting, is it not? Has anyone not been convicted by James? Is there anybody here that does not have a pulse? (laughs) You know, it's crazy. You know, James has with surgical precision um, incised our hearts, hasn't he? He's incised our hearts with the word of God, and he separated out like the dead faith from the living faith so that the dead faith could be carved out so their hearts can, can beat again with, with vigor, with love for God, right? He's done that work. As we've repented of the sin we've been shown and turn in faith, the gospel strengthens our hearts. And James is now going to go after our speech. And I feel a bit like when Christina read that passage, that's pretty much all that needed to be done. We could all just kind of pray, leave deal with it, right? It's amazingly practical. He starts off here, though, by addressing people like me that teach in the church. You see in verse 1, he says, let not many, uh, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with the greater strictness. James is saying, don't be too quick to want to do this. Don't be too quick to want to teach God's people in, in the context of the church. Everyone sins, and the sins of the mouth are the easiest ones to fall into, and those who teach or even at a greater risk of falling into those sins, and we'll be held responsible for them. And I was just thinking about, those of us who are gifted to speak, it can be a blessing and a curse. It can be our greatest strength and our greatest weakness. And I think those of you who have that gifting to speak know that, that you can very quickly bless somebody or destroy them really quickly. really famous example of that is Martin Luther. We had Reformation Day about a week and a half ago, and Martin Luther had amazing verbal gifts. Amazing verbal gifts that God used to spark the Reformation, but with his mouth too, those verbal gifts, he used them to savagely tear people apart. If you go online, not right now, there's a Luther insult generator, okay, where you can just insult me again, push the button, and it'll have another one of his insults. And these are things, they all have a bibliography, they all say what sermon it was in, or what book it was, or what tract it was, but it's things that are just crazy, you know, you're just like, Martin, what's wrong with you? 
And I remember uh, there I was reading a passage of Calvin, and he was talking about Luther because Calvin's a little bit younger. And he was writing about Luther, and he's like, I'm thankful for him, but man, he should have learned how to control his mouth. You know, he just, Calvin being a more serious person, person way more careful about what he said, he's just like, you can't do this. You can't say stuff like this about people. In one part, he's, you know, Luther says, the excrement of an eagle can boast because it comes from an eagle's body, even though it stinks and is useless. You being nobility can do the same. You are and remain people that are swine and senseless beasts. Another one, and that was from a uh, tract uh, that he wrote, a, a gospel tract he wrote. On, on a, in his sermon on keeping children in school, he says this, you are like hogs wallowing forever with your noses in a dunghill. Like, that's unnecessary, right? You know, and it goes on and on. You know, you deserve not only to be given no food at all, but also to be given with dogs set apart upon you and be pelted with horse manure. That's from something on the larger catechism. It's like, what's that doing in there? Or on his work on councils and churches, he says, you are like mouse droppings in the pepper, which was apparently a problem back then. You, could, you can't tell them apart, you know. I mean, he said in his sermon on keeping children in school, he says, you seem to me to be a real masterpiece of the devil's art. A little strong, you know. And so here's a guy with immense verbal gifts. God is so used him in such a great way, and yet his mouth was a mess total mess. In fact, many of you know what I just left out, which is that he was also guilty of horrible anti-Semitism. You could say, oh, just a man of his times, but if you read it, it's like, no. Near the end of his life, in the beginning of his life, very favorable towards the Jews. Later in his life, very anti-Semitic. Things that were even quoted by Nazis and kind of used as propaganda. Like, here's what Martin Luther said to do. Crazy, huh? So you have this man, and he's such a mixture. We who... um, are gifted in speech can be quick and effective in helping people, or we can be very quick and effective in destroying ourselves and others. And so we have to watch out. Like the old saying goes, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You know, whatever your power is. Proverbs say, life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So we run a real risk of destroying both ourselves and others, those of us who are prone to speak. And I'm very prone to speak. I was speaking very well way before I could walk. You know, hey, can you carry me over there? You know, like, so very much a talker, you know. You have that whole thing with husbands and wives where, you know, there's all those jokes about wives and they always want to talk, blah, 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 blah. No, that's me. My wife's really quiet. We went on a walk last night and um, just so I could talk, you know, just so I could share everything that's on my heart. She's just like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But it can be a danger. And so Paul said to Timothy, keep a close watch over yourself and over your teaching. Persist in it, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And you might be saying this morning, oh good, this is a sermon about you, not me. Go ahead, preach on. You want to preach about preachers? Do it. That won't be convicting, finally, a break from James. But guys, this is about all of us. Take a look at verse 2. James says that our speech is a core part of our discipleship. Take a look at James 2, verse 2, chapter 3. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole mouth. Notice the we all and the anyone. James starts with teachers, but then he broadens out to all of us, okay? This is for all of us, because we all speak and we're all responsible for what we say. And actually, thanks to social media, many people have a platform that's way larger than they deserve, right? And you're responsible for that platform. Many of us, you know, might be influencing hundreds, if not thousands of people by the, what we say because of that amplification. And so we are responsible for how we affect people. And even if your audience is just your home, 
Your words have tremendous power. In fact, that's where your words are going to have the most power, is on the people that you love the most and live the closest to. And so James says, if we can learn how to control our words, we can control our whole lives. That word there for perfect, he said, if you can bridle, you're a perfect man, doesn't necessarily mean sinless. What it, it, the word is telos, and it means maturity, completion, kind of that you would reach the point of what you were made to be. And so what he's saying here is he's saying that if you can control your mouth, you've finally grown up. You've finally grown up. And, and we, we ought not to think that our maturity has gone any further than our ability to control our mouths. You might know a lot of doctrine, you might have a lot of insight, but if your mouth is not under control, you'd say you're not mature yet, you're not complete yet. And the Proverbs talk about this a lot, right guys? You guys read through the Proverbs, they may have been convicted by speech things in the Proverbs. That always been my most convicting, you read through the Proverbs and it's all about the speech. Because the Proverbs single out speech as a core part, a core measure of our discipleship. And James agrees, in James 1.26 he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. So if we can learn how to control our words, we can control our lives. And you might think, well, that sounds kind of overstated. Somebody can control their mouth, somehow they can control their life. You know, can really something so small as what we say have such a big effect on our lives? And that's where James gives us these three illustrations. Take a look at them. The first one's the bit. Verse 3, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. This is kind of an amazing thing if you think about it. I mean, horses, first of all, interesting thing about horses, so they have the incisors, and they have the premolars and the molars like you do, but they have a space about that big, at least, between their incisors and their premolars. Perfect spot for a bit, right? Strange, isn't it? Very strange. And we didn't breed that in. You grow up a zebra, they have it too, but they won't. They won't take the bit well. Um, so you put this little bit in this thousand-pound animal's mouth, and you can change his whole course of behavior. It's an amazing thing, right? He's saying just like that, your words have a power over your life that's way out of proportion to the size of your words. Or the rudder, look at verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts great things. Rudder, once again, an example of something very small causing a big thing to turn. And it turns out that our words have massive effects on our lives and all the people around us, like a rudder on a ship. Words are powerful. And so I want to ask you this morning, how are you using this amazing gift of words? God has put tremendous power in your mouth. How are you using it? A few years ago, I, I got sick and uh, for the first time got laryngitis, and, um, which is like punishment to a person like me that needs to talk all the time. Like, this is like, how can I live? You know, this is, this is a real problem. And I was, uh, I'm a horse vet, and so I was on call for emergencies one night, and somebody called with an emergency, and I called, and I'm like, hello. So I'm like the creepy, whispering horse vet, you know? <laughs> hello, you know? And it was so funny. We talked for a little while, and she goes, you know what? I think we'll be fine. We don't need you to come out. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to do this every time I'm going to call. Hello. You know? Just keep me at home. This is great. But God has put tremendous power in our mouths, and it doesn't belong to us. That's what I learned from that situation, is that God was saying to me, your mouth doesn't belong to you. Your voice doesn't belong to you. I've given this. I can take it away. And what you do with it is under my dominion, Right? I, my voice doesn't belong to me. It's, something, it's a gift from God. And so I'd ask you, what are you doing with that tremendous power? Because what you say has a tremendous power over your life, your marriage, your family. The church 
is built on words and is directed by words. And so Proverbs says, you know, death and life are in the power of the tongue. How are we using it? Every day you have an opportunity to use your words to either build somebody up or tear them down. Every day you have the opportunity to speak truth and life into all the people around you. Death and life are in the power of the, of, of the mouth. And uh, Proverbs 10, 11 says that the mouth of the righteous is like a fountain of life. I love that. That we could so have speech that gives life to people. And James gives one more example of something small that has massive effects, but this time destructive. Take a look at verse 5. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So this is the first image that says, wait, the tongue's actually destructive too. Now, in the ancient Palestine, they didn't have really forests. They didn't really have forest fires too much there. But they did have the kind of fires that we're used to, brush fires. And they had the same situation we did, very dry and very easy for things to catch fire and for brush to go, except they didn't have, you know, skilled techniques to take care of this. And um, we have that, this is the season, right? It's perfect timing. Because this is what I call like Mad Max season here, where it's like dry, dusty, windy. It's like a desert on fire, okay? It's like a lovely time to be here. You know, everything's just smoking and, and burning up. And what he's saying here is that our carelessness with our speech is like a careless driver driving along and flicking their cigarette out the window during Santa Ana winds. That's what we do with our speech. You know, when we say things, we think it's just a small thing. We're like, flick. Our tongue is a fire. Proverbs catalyze how we scorch each other. The Proverbs talk about lies, boasting, harsh jokes, um, gossip, angry words, slander, flattery. These are all things in ways in which we can scorch each other, right? Now James says the tongue is a fire. Look at verse 6. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among its members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That phrase there where it says the tongue is a world of unrighteousness, really interesting. It carries the meaning that our tongue is almost like the way that the evil of the world establishes a little base of operations in our life. So that the world that's out there with its evil influences will set up a little base of operations right in your mouth and your tongue. That it's, it's the weak spot in the fence that the evil intruder gains access to your home. It comes in through your tongue. And through our tongues, evil breaks out that stains our lives and then spreads to others. He says it stains and it spreads. So sin is, it spreads virally through our speech. We have the flu in our house right now. I don't have it. If I hugged you, don't worry. Um, but uh, my kids do. Uh, Mason had it. He was sick for like a week. And then Miles got it. And on Friday, he had 104.6, which I didn't think it was even possible. And so he had 104.6. But he is super smart, so if they burn any brain cells, it's fine. He's, like, way smarter than he deserves to be. So, um, but, so he had that, and then Ellie got sick yesterday. So it's crazy, right? And, and it's spreading, right? And, and sin does that, right? It spreads virally like that, right? Our speech is a kind of viral evil. When it says here um, that the entire course of life, that's literally in the Greek, the wheel of generations. The idea is, is that we hand down our sinful ways through our speech, infecting the next generation. That we hand it down through our, our mouths. And at the end of verse 6, he says, where did this viral evil start? Look at verse 6, the end. Set on fire by hell. That's the ultimate source of the evil in our mouths, is it's set on fire by hell. That word hell is the word Gehenna. It's the Valley of Hinnon, which was a place outside of Jerusalem. It was a place that in the Old Testament, people had sacrificed their infants there, and it was like kind of a really 
disturbing kind of area. Later it was turned into like kind of the trash heap, and so there was like burning trash out there all the time. And Jesus used that word Gehenna as an image for hell, a place of everlasting punishment where those who don't trust in Christ go. He used this image of the Valley of Hinnon. But here James seems to be using it to, to say that ultimately our tongues, the evil that's in there, comes from Satan. Isn't that amazing? The evil in our tongues, it ultimately comes from Satan. That, that urge we have to harm other people with our speech has been handed down generation by generation, right? Ever since the first lie that the serpent spoke into the hearts of our first parents in the garden. And that's been handed down. That, that lie has continued down and we continue to spread it. And so the question here, guys, with the tongue being this fire that, that scorches others and it, and it gets handed down to the next generation is, will you keep the fire going? Are you going to be the next step in spreading it? That's what's going on here. Will you pass on that evil to those you love? Guys, the stakes of your speech couldn't be higher. And you might say, okay, okay, okay I hear you, Eric, I hear you. But it's hard. It's hard to control what I say. And you know what James says? I know. Take a look at verse 7. He says, Every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I actually really appreciate James saying that. Because as someone who's really struggled with what I say, to hear James go like, oh no, it's an untamable beast. I'm like, okay, that's helpful to know. Like this is not a unique problem. And we'll get to what the solution is, but it's very helpful to hear him validate that. And he says here that every kind of beast and reptile, he's not saying every single species that's ever lived has been tamed. What he's saying is representatives from each have been tamed. And there's a hint here of Genesis 1.28, right? Because God told Adam and Eve in the beginning, he told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing on the earth. And, and we've done that to some degree, right? We have had dominion over animals. It's amazing. You know, when I was a kid, you could actually go to more animal shows than you can now. But I grew up in San Diego. And so, like, in one day, you could see, like, killer whales doing tricks with people. You know, petting their tongues. You know, riding around on them like they're, you know, like they're, you know, rides or something. Going under the water, having them pick you up and throw you around and like, ha-ha, look at him, and have them wave and stuff like that. It's crazy. These are killer whales, right? They kill things. These aren't your friendly whale. These are the whale with the big teeth. And then you could go to like the wild animal park. You see an elephant show. The elephants are doing tricks. Ha-ha, look at the elephant. You know, he's like picking them up, throwing them around, doing all this stuff, right? Some of those go bad, I know. Like bird show. You know, you got birds. Birds aren't trainable. These birds are like flying around. You know, you got a hawk. Like, why doesn't it just take off? I don't know. It's coming back. You know, here it comes. They didn't clip its wings. It flies right back to you. It's crazy, right? Even cats. Even cats being trained to do things. And they, they, of course, have their own reasons to do it. That they're, you know, they're not doing it for our sake. But all these animals. And, and you know what James is highlighting here is that this is a shame to us, guys. Because we can tame everything but ourselves. Isn't that crazy? You can tame a killer whale and not tame your tongue. That's nuts. That's so inconsistent. That's so crazy, right? It, we can tame everything but ourselves, the one thing that matters. I mean, you might be number one in your field at work. You might just be killing it, right? Or you might be, like, totally winning financially, you know? Or you might be a legend or a legend in your mind, in your sport or hobby or art or at the gym or something. You're a legend there, right? 
you can tame all those things. But none of that matters, guys, unless you can tame yourself. Right? And sometimes those things are ways to kind of compensate for the fact we haven't tamed ourselves. It's like it's way easier to like lift weights or do something else and achieve some goals there because inside I just can't tame myself. That's real strength. Proverbs 16, 32 says, whoever is slow to anger, listen to this, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. He's like, it's actually a way more impressive, powerful, even manly thing to be able to rule your spirit than to be able to take over an entire city. not crazy? The tongue, guys, though, is an untamable beast. It's a nasty little creature, right? Take a look at verse 8. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Don't you just love James's images here? I mean, this is one right after another. I'm not making these up. They're right here. This is like keeping a rattlesnake in your home that's constantly kind of writhing and lunging and trying to bite people, right? That's what our tongue is like. It, it's restless. It never sleeps. It's full of deadly poison. It's always looking for some way to strike, maybe passive-aggressively or maybe overtly, but it's always looking for a way to strike and sting and poison our relationships. Guys, this is the snake in the garden that you must kill. So how do we do it? Well, James kind of works in here to help us kind of get more to the heart issue so we can really dislodge this thing. What does the tongue say about us? Because you could say like, yeah, you know, I'm real troll my mouth. It's kind of my weakness, whatever. But what does it say about you, right? Because it's really not your tongue, right? The tongue's not the problem. What does it say about us that we can't control it? Look at verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, our tongue. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and curses. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. One thing to notice about this passage, guys, is that this passage is not about non-Christians at all. I think there's a real tendency amongst Christians, and it kind of keeps us feeling kind of self-righteous and stuff. You hear a sermon, you're like, yeah, man, those guys at work, they're awful. I wish they heard this. They wouldn't care, though, because they're sinners. (laughs) Right? This passage is not about non-Christians. How do I know that? Because these are people that bless our Lord and Father. Right? This is a mouth that does worship. You know, we think about blessing our Lord and Father. That's what we did when we worship. We bless our Lord and Father. This isn't about non-Christians, guys. Specifically, this is about Christians, that we are radically inconsistent. That, that religion can be sneaky, and it can be very sneaky. And some of you guys have been sneaked by it. Okay, that's a way of saying it. It can be very sneaky because it can give you cover for disdaining certain groups of people, whether they're your cultural enemies, they're your political enemies, they're your religious enemies, whatever they are, that you can make a category of people that are okay to disdain and then cover it with a religious gloss. It's always been happening. It does happen in this room. I'm not going to call you out, and I'm not going to look at you right now, but it does happen here. Okay, that's where I start looking up. We are the kinds of people, guys, who use our tongues to bless God and curse others. I mean, blessing our Lord and God, that's what we do in worship. When, when we declare his beauty and his worth and his glory, we're blessing him. We're, we're blessing his name. And then it says, but we can also use that same mouth, guys, to curse those made in his likeness. And I love this part because James is highlighting this really common theme in the Bible, which is that human beings have been made with this amazing status that we're his image bearers. Human beings are God's image bearers. In Genesis 1.26, he says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. The same word in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as this one. Human beings were made, we were made to be like little statues of God scattered all throughout the world. Do you realize that? 
That's who we're made to be. That's what it means to be an image bearer. The word, um, not in this text, but the word that's used in other places for image is icon. We were meant to be little statues that show what God's like and declare to the world that this is the ruler of the world. God is the ruler of the world. This is what he's like. That's what we were created to do. And that's why how we treat other people really says a lot about what we think of God. And we don't want to make that connection. We want to say, oh, I love God, but man, I can't stand people. You know, it doesn't work that way right? According to this text, how we treat other people reflects how we really feel about God. And in July 9th, 1776, so this is a few days after the Declaration of Independence was written up, a rowdy band of Americans tore down a statue of King George in New York City, which America, right? You know, went, tore it down, like, you know, heard about it, we're, we're out of here, tore down a statue. And they take this statue, lead, take it to Connecticut, they pulverize it, they make bullets and guns out of it. Now that's America, right? <laughs> we're not going to take the statue of you, and we're going to make bullets, and we're going to shoot the bullets at you, right? It's impressive. The message was clear of these people. King George, we hate you. We do not want you ruling over us, right? James is saying that that's what we're doing when we disdain and curse other people. They're image bearers. They're the statue of God, right? So when we disdain and curse other people, we're making a statement about what we think about God. That's what he's saying here. And and maybe those people, in fact, for sure those people are not being very good statues of God. They're not being very good image bearers, but they still are. And Jesus said, you got to love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who hate you. Pray for those who abuse you, right? So that there's nobody kind of outside of the realm of, I have to bless this person. I have to speak blessings on this person. And so it's radically inconsistent, guys, for us to worship God one minute and tear down his image bearers the next, right? Our relationship to God is deeply tied to our relationship to other people. How we speak about and to each other says a lot about whether we really love God. But we can't love God and hate his image bearers. And I think, guys, as the holidays come, there is, for you to build out of this, a theology of traffic and crowds. I think you really should think about this because the way we talk about traffic and crowds or even just people, lots of people gathered in one place, we're immediately angry. Right? You come to some place, oh, there's a bunch of people here, I'm so angry. <laughs> what theologically should you be thinking? Be fruitful and multiply. We did it. <laughs> right? Look at this place. Look at this mall. We've been fruitful and multiplied. God wanted the earth filled with image bearers, Right? And so I think you should really think through your theology. I mean, I don't like a crowd or traffic either, but what do we think of people? When we see a bunch of people, do we think this is a problem? Or do we think these are image bearers of God? It's huge, guys. We've compartmentalized and felt like we could dislike humans and like God, and we can't. They go together. There's no taking them apart. And I know some of you are very uncomfortable with this, and I just have to say, I'll pray for you. But this is what it is, okay? Um, because I think very few of us guys actually love human beings the way we ought to. And I'm not just talking about the cute, cuddly ones or the ones that are nice to us, but just humans. Do we love human beings? Do we think human beings are a good thing? They are a good creature that God made. That they're eternal. I love what C.S. Lewis says about thinking about people as eternal people. He says, it's a very serious thing to live in a society of immortals. Meaning like every single human you know is going to exist forever in the future. He says, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, 
you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption, such as now, if at all, you only meet in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in one degree, helping each other to one or the other destination, right? With our words, we're constantly nudging people to one destination or the other. In light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with each other. We should think this way in dealing with each other. All of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our play, all of our politics— There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or immortal splendors. As we can't love God and hate his image bearers. Verse 10 says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And then he gives us two illustrations. Because he's like really on a roll with the illustrations here. So he gives us two illustrations of our inconsistency. And he says, our inconsistency about this is, is like a spring. Look at verse 11. It's like a spring. Does a spring pour forth the same, uh, from the same opening, fresh water and salt water? In, in Palestine, springs were really important. It was really dry like here. And if you wanted to survive, you needed to find a spring. And springs could be fresh, they could be salty, or they could even be toxic. They had too many minerals in them, they could be toxic. And, what he's, and, and you can imagine that when people found these springs, they, they would kind of put in their mind, okay, that one's fresh water, we can do that one, that one, stay away from this one. That one's okay, that one's okay, right? They'd have in their minds, these are safe places to get water. How dangerous would it be for a spring to alternate? One day good, one day poisonous. What James is saying is that can be us. You know, the people that we love most are drinking from our words. Are we giving them life one minute, poison the next? He's got another example, verse 12. Um, He says, how can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and grapevines, produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. These are kind of classic Mediterranean crops. And in this last verse, we really see an important point, which is that our words actually say something about our insides, right? Our words are like the fruit from a tree. It tells you what kind of tree it is on the inside. Our words are like water. They tell us what's on the inside, like a pond, right? And so our words actually come from the deep recesses of our hearts, Right? Our sinful words come from our sinful hearts. And this is something where, again, he's echoing his brother Jesus, right? Um, in, in Luke 6, 45, he says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what Jesus is saying is that, you know, we're like a cup that's been filled with water to the brim. And when we're bumped, and what comes out? That's out of your heart. And this is really important because we always want to kind of excuse what comes out. Oh, that wasn't me. I didn't mean it, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus is like, no, it came out of your heart. There's nowhere else for it to come from. <laughs> came out of your heart. And so we need to trust those water samples, right? We need to trust that sample. And, and, and so the real problem with us, with our words, is not our mouth. It's our hearts. And this will save us from a lot of weird solutions. Like one of the weirdest solutions that have been in church history is like the monk solution. We're not going to talk. Easy enough, right? We're going to have silence. We're going to have monasteries where no one talks. We just ring bells. We chant once in a while, but we do not talk. Okay, that's not a solution, okay? That's just plugging the hole, okay? That's not dealing with what's inside, right? Um, and, and it might make sense to maybe be silent for a while as a kind of fasting or something, but long-term, that doesn't solve anything. More modern solution is you need a filter, right? That guy's got no filter. You just hear whatever he's thinking. You just 
You need a filter. That's what you need. That's the modern solution. James has already said that won't work. No one can tame the tongue. You don't need a filter, guys. You need a new heart. You need a new heart so that whatever comes out of your mouth will actually be a blessing to everybody around you. Isn't that cool? Isn't that what you really want? That's what I really want. Because the thing is, is that to try to do the filter thing, that's just to try to use your will all day long to not say things that your heart really wants to say. And your will is exhaustible. It's not going to happen. But we want the kind of hearts that whatever flows out is a blessing. That we'd have the mouth of the righteous as a fountain of life. And the good news, guys, is that Jesus came to give you both forgiveness and a new heart. He came to change the kind of tree and the kind of pond you are, not just to change your words. Because we've all been really bad image bearers of God, haven't we? I mean, if your job is to be a statue that shows who God is, we've not done well. We've done horribly at this, right? We have fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, you know, we read in Romans that we're called to, to glorify God in the sense that your life is supposed to be like a, 40, a mirror on a 45-degree angle, that God's glory and beauty and worth and love would reflect off you to everybody out there. And they look at your life and they go, man, God must be good. Look at that guy's life right? But what's happened? The exact opposite has been, how can there be a good God when there's so much of this in the world, right? We've done a very bad job of being his image bearers. We've fallen short of his glory. We're sinners, and we see that most in our speech. There's no way that what I said this morning does not convict you, right? Because the wages of sin is death, and we see that sin in our speech. We deserve, guys, for our words. We deserve to be banished to Gehenna, right? We, that's what we deserve. Jesus said on the final day, that every word, careless word, will be dealt with. You're like, oh no, oh yes. Have you ever accidentally called somebody? And then you left a long voicemail of whatever you happen to be saying. How did you feel when you realized you did it? What were your thoughts? Oh, I'm sure I was saying wonderful things. You're like, oh no, I wonder what I was saying, right? Right? There's a constant recording of our dialogue. We're sinners. We're clearly sinners, but God the Son became a man to restore the image of God. And he came and he was perfect, right? He was perfect in everything he said and everything he did. Jesus restored the perfect image of God. When you look at Jesus' life, you do say, man, God must be good if, he's, if, God, if this is what he's like. He must be so good, right? Jesus is the perfect image of God. And the good news is if you'll trust in him, you'll be seen in that image. That will be your record, which is a wonderful, beautiful thing, guys. If you repent and trust in Jesus, God will see you in the image of Christ as if you lived the way he lived, as if you said the things he said. Uh, Tim Keller put it this way of the gospel, he says, is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same moment in Christ, we're more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. That's what it is, right? And we've seen this morning, we're more sinful and flawed than we really want to talk about. And yet in Christ, we're more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. If, if God did that for us, guys, that gives us the ability to do it for others. How can I treat people that are very flawed image bearers of God as if they weren't? <laughs> How can I bless them? And I do it by remembering that God treats me like Christ and that I could treat other people in the same way and bless them with my words. And you might say, one last point, you might say, that's impossible. Remember verse 8? No one can tame the tongue. You might say, like, no one can tame the tongue. It does say that, right? Verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. Maybe it's hopeless. I love what the African bishop Augustine said in the 4th century. He said, indeed, no mere human can tame the tongue, but God can. God can tame the tongue. Jesus tamed the tongue, didn't he? Think about Jesus' life. Did he tame the tongue? Ultimate tests on the cross. Peter said that when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. 
When he suffered, he didn't threaten. You remember the things he said on the cross as he's nailed to the cross, like nails between his carpal bones into wood, and he's hanging by these things. And what kind of words come out of him when you puncture him like that? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He makes plans for his mom to be taken care of by somebody else. I mean, these are amazing words that he has, right? Jesus can tame the tongue and he can tame yours. And he wants to tame yours. There's a beautiful passage in Isaiah 50 where it says, The Lord God has given me a tongue that has been taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. You can actually learn from Jesus how to have your tongue tamed. He can tame your tongue. This is not an impossible project for Jesus. He's already shown he can do it. Jesus will speak through you. How would it be, guys, to go from using our words the way we use them now to actually having Jesus speak through us on a normal basis? I was talking to a brother just right before, you know, right before the sermon. It was a great timing. And he was just telling me how he's been able to share Christ with somebody. He's a brand new believer. And um, he's now using his words to evangelize instead of tear people down. And it's amazing. And he loves it. He's excited. Why wouldn't he be? Imagine that. Imagine for us who have walked with the Lord more, that if we could somehow have Jesus speak through us, imagine the fruit it would make in your workplace. Don't mark your workplace out as not a place that's going to happen. Your workplace is like, for, for many of us, is where you spend most of your waking hours. Think about your workplace. Think about your neighborhood. Don't block your neighbors out of this, right? A lot of times we want to act like they don't exist. This is a great place for us to, to speak. Friendships, uh, family, in this church, if we could learn to have Jesus speak through us, what would it sound like? One thing it wouldn't sound like, and I haven't gone after the silent types yet, it wouldn't sound like silence. I think that's another way that we sin. I don't sin that way. I sin by what I say. Sometimes I actually do sin by what I don't say, actually, now that I think about it. There have been many times when I should have said something and didn't. And I think all of us could relate to that, right? That we can sin by our silence. What would it sound like? It would sound like encouragement, right? It would sound like encouragement. It would sound like exhortation. What's exhortation? It's like more of a command. This is what the Word says. Let me show you what the Word says. This is what you're doing. This is what the Word says. It could sound like rebuke, right? Very important rebukes, right? That that a rebuke can be a surgical move that God does through your mouth to help free somebody from sin. It could be prophecy. It could be God speaking something about their heart that, that, that you couldn't have known, but God wanted them to hear. It, it could be prayer. You know, think of how often you pray with people. You know, you see them for coffee, you see them for lunch, you put your kids to bed, you rise up with your kids, you're on your way, some, somebody in the church brings something real heavy, you say, I'll pray for you. Pray for them now right? Pray for them now. It could be benedictions. We do benedictions at the end of service, and you might think benedictions are just a in-the-church thing. They aren't. You know, fathers, bless your kids. So fun. We put them to bed. Put your hand on their forehead and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance and give you peace. And you can do it, and you tickle them while you do it, you know? Make it fun, right? It can look like singing, right? Singing is a way we use our mouths to glorify God and to build up others. Teaching, evangelism, missions, right? How can they believe unless they've heard? Ask yourself, I think this would be an important thing to do, ask yourself every day, have I spoken truth and life into each one of the people in my life? Have I done something to nudge that eternal being towards Christ? And it doesn't always have to be something huge, but it's something, right? 
The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to repent of the words we wish you never said. You guys have some? This is a time to do it. Repent of the words you wish you never said and the heart that it came from. It's a time for us to rejoice in God's forgiveness. You, if you're trusting in Christ, have Jesus' perfect verbal righteousness. You have his transcripts. Remember the phone recording? You have his recording as your record if you're trusting in Christ. And then to rejoice in that. And then to receive Christ's presence. Just as we take the bread into our mouths and it goes down into us, we can rejoice in the fact that the Spirit is going to cause Christ's words to come out of our mouth and dwell in our hearts. Have you come to Christ? Have you received that forgiveness? Are you thankful? How many of you guys are thankful that you don't stand on your own verbal record, but you, you stand on Christ? If that's you this morning, then come forward and take this. But if you're, if you're not one of those people, if you're not trusting in Christ, don't take this. Take Christ. The best thing you can do with your mouth is to confess Christ as your Savior. Is the best thing you can do with your mouth. And you can do it this morning. You just ask him for forgiveness. Repent of your sin. Trust in him and you'll leave new. Let's stand, guys. Um, let's stand to, to worship the Lord. Let's stand to bless the Lord and our Father. And then after the benediction, we'll leave this place to bless others with the same mouth, right? Be consistent people by the power of the Spirit. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.